Matthew 26, 17 to 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, that is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave thanks, or gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had to give it thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they, sang, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Why don't you all pray with me one more time. Father, I want to thank you again for this day and for your word, the opportunity for us to learn and to be nourished by your living word. We ask and pray that you will strengthen us, challenge us um, through your word this morning. We want to thank you again. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Uh, you guys are taking notes. The title of today's message is called The Meal to Remember, or A Meal to Remember. Friends, have you guys ever been part of a meal, or been part of a dinner, or a supper, or lunch, or even breakfast, where you felt so uncomfortable that it was difficult for you to digest, let alone eat the food that was placed in front of you? I mean, it was such a, it's such a cruel thing, isn't it? Let's say you have, like, steak, lobsters, carby, sushi, like anything and everything that you want right in front of you, and then all of a sudden your parents want to talk to you about the birds and the bees, right? Or all of a sudden, one of your friends starts breaking down and shares about perhaps the most uncomfortable topic that makes you not even want to look at the food, or all the food that you just digested, uh, you are not able to keep down. Uh, maybe it was at a family gathering where the tension is so high, maybe due to your grades, maybe due to a relationship issue, because of what someone said or because of what someone did. Or maybe it was during one of those casual meals with your friends on the weekend or in school, or even at church where you were constantly checking the time on your phone, desperately wanting the meal to end. I remember being part of meals where things were so tense that I wasn't able to keep all the food that I ate during the meal. Meaning, I don't remember what I ate, but the, uh, or what the whole conversation about or conversation was about. But I was—I remember—I was in the bathroom afterwards, constantly vomiting everything that I ate, uh, which was not good. Uh, in today's passage, friends, as Jesus and his disciples get together for a dinner or for supper, it wasn't the most comfortable setting for a meal. Now, I don't know if you guys remember the famous painting of Jesus' Last Supper, where everyone just sitting. But back in the day, if you've ever been part of a Middle Eastern uh, 
if you've ever been to a Middle Eastern uh, restaurant or a country where they eat, they actually eat on the floor and they recline at the table, meaning they're like kicking back, sitting down with their feet in the front, eating a meal from the floor, not on chairs, uh, on a table. It's just literally on the floor. So as they were at this comfortable setting to eat a meal, Jesus brings up a topic that is perhaps very uncomfortable for the disciples. He talks about betrayal, that someone will betray him amongst the 12 who, he thought was, who they thought were the closest to Jesus. He talks about blood as, as well as his body being broken. And all of this to portray the importance of this Last Supper that is truly a meal to remember. As we look and study this passage regarding the Passover meal, the Last Supper, as well as, as, well as its relation to the communion, it is perhaps a meal to remember not only for the disciples, but a meal that as well as a story that we ought to remember for ourselves each and, every ta- each and every time we take part in communion. So during our time together this morning, I want us to ask and answer these three questions. First of all, what's the big deal about the Passover? And what's the Last Supper got to do with the Passover? And what's the Last Supper got to do with us? So what's the big deal about the Passover? What's the Last Supper got to do with the Passover? And what's the Last Supper got to do with us? So first, what's the big deal, sorry, what's the big deal about the Passover? If you recall from last week, Passover was a big festival. It was a big annual festival that took place in Jerusalem. And during this festival, according to uh, Josephus, 2.7 million Jews showed up each and every year. That's only the Jews. If you count the foreigners, it was probably a lot more than 2.7. It was a celebration of God's rescue, of God's deliverance of his people, the Israelites, from their slavery in Egypt. As we can see in Exodus chapter 12, from the Old Testament, after being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God finally led the Israelites out of Egypt, even when Pharaoh was adamantly against this ideal. Due to this, God sent 10 plagues, starting with turning the Nile into the blood, sending frogs, locusts, hail, and boils to remind everyone in Egypt that God is the God of the universe, and there is no other God like him. Yet despite all of this, Pharaoh continued to refuse to let his people go. So in the tenth, for the tenth and final plague, God sent a plague where he will kill all the firstborns in Egypt. He will kill all the firstborns in Egypt, not only the Egyptians, but also the Israelites. But God graciously provides a way for the Israelites as he commanded them through Moses to smear the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. So as the angel of death was going around Egypt trying to kill all the firstborns, as they see a door that is smeared with the blood of the lamb, they would pass over that home because there was already bloodshed in that household. To celebrate this rescue and redemption from slavery to freedom, the Israelites would hold an annual feast called the Passover, where they would bring a sacrifice or sacrificial animal to slaughter to atone for their sins. But this feast was also called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is what we see in verse 17. It was actually called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that lasted seven days because, you see, back in the day, 
during the day of Exodus, during the days when the Israelites were finally on their way out of Egypt, they had no time to wait for the bread to rise. I'm not an expert at baking, but if you know anything about baking, it's called unleavened bread because it is without yeast. Now, yeast is an ingredient that causes the bread to rise, but it requires time. It takes time for the bread to rise. As the Israelites were on the move, they had no time. They had no time to wait for the yeast to rise because they were on the move. Perhaps this is where all the restaurants got the concept or the idea of fast food, right? It's the first original fast food, right? The unleavened bread. This is why they call the Passover also the unleavened bread or feast of the unleavened bread as they're eating, as they celebrate the unleavened bread. And during the Passover each year, as I mentioned, 2.7 million. Around 2.7 million Jews would gather together to celebrate this joyous occasion. So why was it such a big deal? Why was the Passover, why was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread such a big deal that so many people would gather to celebrate, not once every 10 years, but once every year? It was a big deal for the Israelites because it, was, it reminded them of the faithfulness of God. And how God, by his grace and mercy, delivered them from slavery to freedom. It was a big deal for the people of God called Israelites because for them, it was a time where God set them free from their slavery in Egypt. The Passover is often celebrated for seven days. And as the final days were approaching, the disciples come to Jesus in today's passage in verse 17, asking where they should prepare this for for this grand Passover meal. Look at verse 17. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for for you to eat the Passover? In response, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 18 to go to the city of Jerusalem and make a reservation for 13. Make a reservation for the 12 disciples and himself at someone's home. Verse 18 says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Little did the disciples know, it was not just going to be a typical Passover meal like every other year since the Exodus. But it was a meal to remember. It would be a meal like no other. A meal that has perhaps the greatest significance in the history of mankind. The Passover was such a big deal because it reminded them of the faithfulness of God and how God rescued them from the slavery in Egypt. But this meal was not going to be just a regular Passover meal. It was indeed going to be the last Passover meal and the first Lord's Supper. So what's this got to do with the Last Supper? Second view or second point? What's the Last Supper got to do with the Passover? Why is it that Jesus is celebrating the Passover by ushering in this new concept called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper? The first thing that we see is that the Last Supper took place during Passover. And the reason why this meal was so significant or memorable was not because they were serving steak and lobsters. It was not because they were serving surf and turf or sushi or whatever your favorite food is, but it was because it was all centered around Jesus Christ. This meal represented the end of the Passover and the beginning of the Lord's Supper, and Jesus was at the center of it all. Normally, the main event, the central focal point of the Passover, will center around 
the lamb. You know, before, uh, after they would slaughter the lamb and to smear its blood to atone for their sin, what would they do with the lamb afterwards? They'll cook it. They'll eat it. Uh, I was in Turkey this past summer, and man, I was never a fan of lamb. I always thought it smelled bad, didn't really taste good, but man, you guys need to go to Turkey because it's perhaps one of the most delicious meat I've ever tried in my life. Maybe there's a reason why God told his people to slay the lamb, not, for only, not only for its blood, maybe for its meat as well. It's beautiful, delicious. Anyways, in this Passover, in this meal, the lamb was not the focal point. In fact, there was no lamb to be seen. There was no lamb that was to be served. Yet the focal point was Jesus Christ himself. Instead of focusing on the unleavened bread, instead of focusing on the lamb, instead of focusing on anything else on the menu, even the side dishes and appetizers, Jesus focuses on himself and the significance of the bread and the wine to represent his body and his blood that will be shed. And through the Last Supper, Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice as the ultimate sacrificial lamb as Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And just as each lamb were slain to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God as he announces that he must be slain. He will be slain and he must be slain a few days later to take away the sins of the world, as John chapter 1, verse 29 says. Before the Israelites would celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt, now, through the Last Supper, we will now celebrate God's greater deliverance, His greatest deliverance from our slavery to sin, to freedom. But just like Exodus, just like Passover, there has to be bloodshed. In order for this Lord's Supper to happen, there has to be bloodshed. But there is no lamb to be seen on this day because Jesus will be the lamb that will be slain for His blood to be shed and smeared on the doorpost of our hearts. So that the wrath of God doesn't come to us, but it comes to Jesus Christ. It is all placed on our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross was perhaps the greatest and the final Passover as he smears his blood on the cross once and for all, so that whoever is in Christ is forever rescued and delivered from the slavery of sin. I would say the blood on the doorpost the blood of Jesus Christ on our, on our hearts is like having a receipt. I know, I know some of you guys don't like keeping your receipts whenever you buy stuff, but when you go shopping either to a mall or to any store and you purchase something, what do you get? You receive a receipt. Now, nowadays, they email it to you, right? But you receive a physical receipt, and then with this receipt, it gives you the power to walk around the store with the item that you just purchased, even if it's the biggest TV or even if it's a small gum. You can walk around the store chewing that gum or carrying around that TV because you know that it has already been purchased. You know that it has already been paid for. So even when the employees in the store stops you to see if you've paid for the item, all you have to do is whip out that receipt and tell them, boom, it's already been paid for. The blood of Christ is just like that. It's like the receipt that proves that our sins have been paid for once and for all. Paid in full. Passover was important for the Israelites, but, but the Last Supper? Passover was very, very important, but the Last Supper, it's about to usher in a whole new level of importance. 
not only for the Israelites, but for the new spiritual Israelites, meaning people who are in Christ, meaning people who believe Jesus is their Lord and Savior. Meaning regardless of your race, regardless of your background, anybody who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior can now enter into this new covenant, this better covenant through the body that would be broken and the blood that would be shed. Back in the day, they call it the Mosaic Covenant. It was only for the people of Israel. For the Egyptians, they had no chance. But this new covenant that Jeremiah 31 talks about, this new covenant that Jesus is ushering in, is for the worst of sinners. It's for Koreans. It's for Chinese. It's for Vietnamese. It's for anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what background you are. The only thing that matters is you are willing to live for Jesus Christ. The Last Supper would end the celebration of the Passover. And it would begin a new celebration called the Lord's Supper, or some of us, we call it the Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Uh, If you've been worshiping with us on Sundays, or if you've ever visited Sunday service at any other church, or even even in a Catholic Mass, I'm sure you've experienced or you've seen with your eyes this uh, sacrament called the Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, being celebrated in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Uh, Protestant churches normally call it the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, or the Holy Communion, but Catholic churches, or Catholic Mass, they call it the Eucharist. So what does Jesus really mean when he says, in verse 26, this is my body, and what does he mean when he says, in verse 28, this is my blood? How are we to interpret when Jesus is saying, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant, drink, and as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Well, how are we to understand that passage? Because of that, there has been divisions even within the church. Um, How we interpret that literally or figuratively, uh, throughout history, there are four different views regarding how people view and understand the Lord's Supper. And I know it can be boring, but I want it to be a little bit more informative for us to know why we do and celebrate communion the way we do. So here are the four different views of the Holy Communion. First, transubstantiation. The first view is called transubstantiation. It's a big word. Some of you guys will probably never use it in your life, and that's okay. But literally, it just means that the substance is transferred. The body or the bread and the wine is transferred. Or let me say this again. The body of Christ and the blood of Christ is transferred to the bread and the wine in the Holy Communion. Roman Catholics hold this view as they believe that the bread and the wine physically become the real body of Jesus Christ and the real blood of Jesus Christ. And because of this, some churches, what they would do is You know, the remaining bread and the remaining wine after the Holy Communion is over, they would go in the back and they would bury it because they believe that it physically has become the real body and the real blood of Jesus Christ. So that's one view, transubstantiation. Second view is called the consubstantiation. It's another big word. It's mainly held by Lutheran churches. Lutheran churches. Another big word, it means that although the bread and the wine doesn't turn physically into the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, the word con, right, means in and with. Um, They focus on the union between the bread and the body, the union between the wine and the blood. 
It means that whenever they take and they partake in the Holy Communion, they are partaking in not only the bread, but also the body of Christ. Whenever they drink of the wine, they are partaking in not only the wine, but also the blood of Christ. There's another view called the memorial view. Memorial view that many Baptist churches hold. They emphasize on the phrase, do this in remembrance of me. There's no physical presence of God. There's no spiritual element to this. It's just a memorial service. For them, they believe that the Holy Communion is just a memorial remembrance thing and nothing else. The bread doesn't turn into Jesus' body. His presence is not among us. It's just a memorial service as they remember what Jesus has done for them. And the fourth, last but not least, there is the spiritual presence view. And this is what our church holds to. We believe that whenever we take part in communion, whenever we take part in the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ is not physically present with us as, his, as the bread and the wine becomes his body and blood, but we believe that he is spiritually present among us, leading us and guiding us and having this holy communion, holy fellowship together with his people. We believe that whenever we take part in communion, he is spiritually present, but the element of the bread and the wine doesn't turn to anything. It's just bread and wine. That's why sometimes we can celebrate Holy Communion with uh, Hawaiian bread, or sometimes even with banana bread. It doesn't matter what the element is. It's simply representing the body and the blood of Christ, but what is really important is the spiritual presence of God that leads us and guides us throughout the process of the Holy Communion. As we come to the front to take the bread and the wine and grape juice, that symbolizes the body and the blo- uh, body that's been broken and the blood that's been shed by our loving Savior. And we're reminded of the receipt that we have, that we have received that says paid in full. As we come to the foot of the cross, as we take the bread and the wine, we are reminded that all of our sins, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our failures, all of our baggage, through this spiritual union, through this spiritual fellowship with Jesus Christ, it strengthens us. It encourages us. It leads us to repentance. And it empowers us to keep on running. I don't know about you guys, but whenever we partake in Holy Communion, it's very emotional. I think it's because it's spiritual. It's as if you're praying and you feel as though God is really working and speaking to you. It's as if you're reading the Word of God and you feel as though some days you feel this special presence of God. The Holy Communion is the same way where as we partake in the Holy Communion together as the church, He is with us. He is among us. And that's also picturing what is ahead. The greatest feast in heaven. So going back to the original question. What's the Lord's Supper got to do with the Passover? It's got everything to do with the Passover, as it not only replaces it, but it gives hope, a new covenant, not only for the Israel back then, but also to the spiritual Israelites who desires to follow Jesus. That's you, and that's me. Which then leads us to our final question. What's it got to do with us? Pastor Gunn, I'm not even, I don't even, I don't, I don't, I don't even take the bread and the grape juice. What's it got to do with me? First and foremost, I believe it serves, the Holy Communion serves as a gracious warning for all of us. Gracious warning. In between the story of the Passover and the Last Supper, we see in the middle, sandwiched, a story 
of Jesus announcing to his disciples that one of them would betray them. This caused an uproar as one by one the disciples would come to Jesus to ask if it would be them. And how would you feel, right? You're dining with Jesus, right? Back in the day, they didn't have like personal plates. It's all um, family styles. They would dip their own bread to eat. And as they were about to dip, Jesus said, one of you guys will betray me. You put that bread right back, right? You're like, I don't want any of that. Is it going to be me, Jesus? Is it, is it him? It's got to be this guy, right? This caused an uproar, and Judas, out of all people, already agreeing to hand Jesus over to the officials, he goes to ask Jesus, perhaps to just to check if Jesus already knows his plan, right? He goes up to Jesus, and he asks in verse 25, Jesus, is it, is it me? Is it I? What's interesting here in verse 25, the way, that, uh, the way that Judas asks Jesus this question compared to all the other disciples is that he calls Jesus a rabbi. A rabbi is another word for teacher. When all the other disciples called Jesus Lord, Judas calls Jesus rabbi, which signifies that there's no faith, which signifies that J- Judas was never a, Grish- a Christian, which signifies that Judas was never a believer of Jesus Christ. And through this story, I believe God is graciously warning us that we can be just like Judas. Despite Judas' schemes, despite already knowing the betrayal that was going to take place, Jesus, in a way, is reminding Judas it's never too late. Despite Judas already making up his mind that he's going to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing all this, still welcomes and re-invites Judas one more time, saying it's not too late to repent to come to me. Friends, I believe this passage serves as a great reminder, a great warning for all of us here as well who might feel like Judas. Just because you've seen Jesus, just because you've heard Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean you follow Jesus. Just because you know about Jesus doesn't mean he knows you. You say, I never knew you, depart from me. You can know a lot about Jesus and still not obey him, still not follow him. Meaning you can act like a Christian, but not be a Christian. You can pretend to have a relationship with Jesus, but not still be saved. Looking at the life of Judas, he followed Jesus all throughout his ministry. All his life, for the past three years, he's been following Jesus everywhere. He saw all the miracles, he's heard all the sermons, yet his heart never changed. Friends, don't assume that you are a follower of Christ just because you've been coming to church every week. Don't assume that the person sitting next to you is going to end up in heaven because they own a Bible. Don't assume that you have a guaranteed ticket into heaven because your parents baptized you as a kid. This passage should serve as a heart check. It should serve as a gracious reminder for us to hold the mirror in front of our hearts, to hold the Word of God in front of our hearts and ask ourselves, am I really in love with Christ? Do I really follow Jesus Christ and obey Him because I love Him? Or is it all a show? One thing that's not written in this passage that we can see from the Gospel of John is that Judas did not 
partake in the Lord's communion. As I mentioned before last week, Gospels like Mark and John are more chronological, but the book of Matthew is very thematic, so it's kind of out of order chronologically. When you look at the Gospel of John, it tells us that Judas had this exchange with Jesus before the Lord's Supper took place. So when Jesus says that all of you, whoever takes of this bread and the wine will be with me for eternity, the new covenant is for you, Judas was never included in that. I would take that a step further. And there are some of us who have been baptized, some of us who have been confirmed, some of, us, some of us who do partake in communion each and every month. But only God knows if you're truly saved or not. May we learn to check our hearts each and every time we partake as we come to the table as we remind ourselves that our lives have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Do we believe that? If you do, then you will be with Christ for eternity in heaven. But if you don't, he said he'll never, he never knew you. Not only does this passage serve as a gracious warning, but it also serves as a gracious invitation or re-invitation. I believe the Lord's Supper, whenever the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion is taking place, it is inviting us or re-inviting us again to come to the table. Those who feel as though they've betrayed Jesus due to their sins, those who feel too sinful to come to Jesus, that's what the Lord's Supper is for. It's not, only the, it's not for the people who are perfect, who feel like they're perfect because no one is perfect. It's not for those people who feel righteous, who feel clean, who feel sinless because no one is righteous, no one is sinless. For anyone and everyone who is willing to admit their failures and their sins. That's what the Lord's table, the Holy Communion is for. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the new covenant that Jesus talks about in verse 28. Verse 20 says, For this is my blood of the covenant, another word for promise, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is actually in reference to Jeremiah chapter 31. And I know it's a long passage, but I, I want to read this for us because I believe it's so powerful. Let's, let me read this for us. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that he made with the Israelites in Exodus, uh, not like the old covenant that he made with the fathers on the day when he took them by the hand and bring them out, brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness who broke his covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other, or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, in this new covenant, it focuses on the total forgiveness of the past, of the present, as well as the future sins. And it invites us to an eternal fellowship with God. And the beauty of this invitation, and we look at the subject and the verb of these three verses, God is the one who is initiating. 
God is the one who is reaching out. God is the one who is doing the inviting to the people who don't deserve an invitation. That's us. Despite the previous generations that have failed to keep their covenant with God, God ushers in a new covenant, a better covenant. And the beauty of it all is how God is the one who doesn't need to, but he desires to initiate first. God is the one who commits to us first. God is the one who reaches out, and he does this by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, on the greatest rescue mission of all. To not only rescue, but to forgive his people once and for all and remember their sins no more. Friends, this is what's taking place as Jesus is ushering in the Lord's Supper. And this is what we are being invited to and re-invited to again and again and again as we partake in the Lord's Supper. I really wish we could partake in Lord's Supper today. In our church, we have communion Sunday once a month and every second Sunday of the month, which is next week. Um, but if it was up to me, I wish we could have it every week because I believe it's a great reminder for us, a great re-invitation for us to his, uh, to his table. As we eat the bread and drink the wine or the grape juice, we are to be identified with his death and experience the forgiveness that is achieved only by his death on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. Friends, the Lord's Supper doesn't only forgive us of our sins, but it also invites us to the greatest banquet that awaits. We celebrate the Lord's Supper not only to remind us of our forgiveness of sins, but also with the anticipation of the greater banquet that is to come. Where although we only partake in communion among the spiritual presence uh, of Christ, in heaven we will have this amazing heavenly banquet, not only with Jesus Christ, but all, with all the redeemed in this perfect fellowship together forever. Think about the greatest meal that you've ever had in this world, times that by a bajillion, and it doesn't even compare to the heavenly banquet that awaits. Not only because of what's on the menu, but because who you get to have fellowship with, who you get to break bread with. That's Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, and with all the redeemed. My prayer is that we will all celebrate, we will all reunite in the greatest banquet in heaven. But I'm afraid that some of us won't be there. Some of us think we will be there, but we won't. Because we're just like Judas. We think we are in love with Jesus. We think we are in relationship with Jesus. We think we have our ticket in because we've gone to church. We've been with Jesus long enough. Friends, how do you view the Lord's Supper? How do you prepare for the Holy Communion. For some of us, we just come in on Sunday, half a week. Oh, it's Communion Sunday today. Is it simply something that we do because we're told and we finally get to nibble on that dry cracker and grape juice? It's just the element itself has no significance. And if you go to a Catholic Mass, uh, if, you, if, you, if you spill the cup, uh, maybe everyone will stare at you. You're like, oh my gosh, you just spilled the blood of Christ. For us, we believe in the spiritual presence of God being with us and leading us and ushering us into this holy communion. How do you prepare for that? How do you prepare to be in the spiritual presence of God? Do we just come unprepared as if we're just coming to class? Or do we come with prepared hearts as we are about to meet with God face to face? 
Is the Lord's communion, is the Holy Communion life-giving? Is it faith-strengthening as it reminds you of the journey that you had once slave to sin and now freed to the life that awaits in heaven? I pray that we will use this week to prepare our hearts for next Sunday, which is the Communion Sunday. And as we do so, I pray that it will indeed be a meal that we will remember. It will indeed be a meal that strengthens us, that empowers us, that encourages us. That will indeed be an uncomfortable meal as we look to our failures, as we look to our sins, as we look to our mistakes, but that it will also be a comforting meal, the most comforting meal as we are reminded of His grace, as you are reminded of His gracious warning as well as His gracious invitation. That in Jesus Christ, as He shed and smeared His blood on the doorposts of our hearts, God sees us as He sees Jesus Christ. He sees us as His beloved. He sees us as His precious children of God, forgiven and redeemed. Can we pray at this time that we won't abandon Jesus for the riches of this world, just like Judas, that we won't leave Jesus for the things that might seem more attractive in this world like Judas, but even if we are tempted, even if we are distracted, that we will remind ourselves through the Lord's table again and again, time and time again, that there is no greater place. There is no greater meal. There is no greater privilege to partake in his body and his blood. Amen. Let's pray together.